Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Now, I want to get to somebody who knows an awful lot about GameStop. He's been involved with the company for a decade. He's portfolio manager at Permit Capital, and his name is John Broderick. So, John, thanks for joining. I have to ask you if you can give us any details that you can about you know how you own GameStop and what you own right now. Um, sure. I can't really go into the details of what we own right now. Sure. Um, we, we reduced our position somewhat, um, given the, the, <laughs> the meteoric rise of stock. Um, but we, um, and I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Um, but, you know, I, we got involved with the stock 10 years ago because it was just, just this amazing, um, it had this amazing business where they were engaging with um, this very dedicated group of, uh, of, of customers, the Power of Rewards customers, and it was a very efficient business model that, that fell in hard times with digital disintermediation, a lot of uh, turnover in the C-suite. Um, but we believed, we believed in the company and we stuck with it. Um, in fact, we, 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 uh, I, I, I partnered with uh, Kurt Wolf at Hestia Capital uh, this time last year, and we ran a proxy campaign uh, successfully and got two new board members, including Kurt, um, onto the board. And I think that, that um, my, my sense is that that caught the attention of other people in specialty retail, uh, particularly Ryan Cohen, who um, you know, is, is understands a lot about specialty retail, at least on, in the online domain. And... Um, it's just we, we we've never looked back from there. So uh, GameStop is uh, trading's halted uh, once again here, John. What can you tell us? I, I'm not sure if you if you've been in touch with anybody at the company over the last several days. What are they thinking uh, in terms of what's going on in the marketplace? I have no idea. I I, I have no idea. Uh, my my sense is that they're talking. It might. I, I would have to imagine that there's been a lot of internal discussion about this. Um, uh, you know about the situation. Um, I, but I have no, I, I, I have no idea I, I, what the what the company um, uh, is planning to do, what they might do. I just have no idea. I think they're about to, we're about to close the quarter, so they are in a blackout period, and they will be uh, for another couple of weeks. Um, but you know, certainly with the move in the stock, I'm sure there are a lot of people inside GameStop uh, talking about uh, what they, you know, you know what they can, uh, you know, what they can do um, strategically. John, I have to ask you what you make of this movement. So you've, I mean, literally more than three million members of this Wall Street Bets subreddit now, and the the kind of language on here is so. I mean, it's it deserves studying in itself. It's that rhetoric that we've been getting used to about you know, think going to the moon and the rocket emojis and so on, and you know, take all the cash you can afford to lose and buy, buy, buy. Is this something that should ever be associated with a, a stock? Um, I don't know. Um, I guess I guess I would say why not? Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a free market and it's a free world. And um, you know, as long as the people in those chat rooms are are not uh, you know telling lies or you know or disclosing material not public information, I, I just don't see how that's an issue. People are free to talk about investing ideas. I, I you know I think that there is something. There's always, you know, you want speech to be free, but you also want speech to be responsible. And I'm not, all, I'm not that familiar with Wall Street bets, but what I have seen is it's really just a lot of um, um, recycling of the same, you know, of the same uh, emojis, you know, the rocket to the moon and, and uh, diamond hands and, and so on. 
and I think that the um, I, I think what 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 these amateur investors have have, have sniffed out is how vulnerable um, the shorts uh, the short sellers are here. There's a 130 percent short interest uh, based on the most recent S3 data that I saw. Maybe it's a little bit higher. I, I don't know how that resolves itself. Yeah, and, um, if, I just want to follow up if I can, Paul. I hope you don't mind. Um, how are they sticking it to the man if they're <laughs> pushing the stock higher? They're only sticking it to the short sellers, John. I, I don't understand how they think they're getting the better of the institutional uh, money that are in some of these stocks. And we're talking about the major institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard. They're happy out with this movement. That's a fair point. Uh, you know, it's a fair point that, you know, if, if they're... If they're sticking it to, um, you know, a large hedge fund that has a, a big short position or is long puts or something, certainly, uh, you know, they might be hurting them, but creating an enormous opportunity and, and, and windfall uh, for other uh, long-oriented institutional holders. Um, I would I would say to that that, uh, you, you know, they, they I think the narrative here is just it's sort of this us against them narrative. It's the dark side and the light side. It's a, it's a, and it's, it's you know, uh, where uh, Ryan Cohen is their kind of hero. Um, there's a guy named uh, DFB, I'll just leave it at that, um, who's also kind of a folk hero. And it's them versus the sort of big guys on Wall Street. Whether those big guys, the big guys on Wall Street, quote unquote, are not a monolithic group. It's a very diverse group of people. But um, they just, that's kind of the simple narrative. And whether or not it's, whether or not what in fact they're doing is really sticking it to the man, as you say, I, I uh, you know, I don't think they see it that way. They just say, okay, if we can, um, you know, take a, 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 you know, a hedge fund to its knees, that, that, that's good enough for them. All right, John, you've been a shareholder in, in this company. Um, what can you tell us about the business? What's the investment thesis here? Yeah, I mean, this is a company that, um, you know, if you, go, if, you, if you turn back five years when, um, maybe even longer than that now, when Paul Rains is CEO, the company was performing really, really well. The returns on invested capital far exceeded that of the other, um, uh, of the other specialty retailers out there. And, they, again, they just fell in hard times. They had a lot of turnover in the CEO suite. Um, digital disintermediation really hurt. The length of the console cycle really hurt. And the... Um, the, the, there was just a the company just fell on hard times. Um, but you, when you when you when you think about this category, how big the video game industry is, and what kind of role they can play in it, there, there's a big big opportunity here. I don't know if they're going to be able to capitalize that. I don't think anybody knows. Um, but there is a big opportunity where you already have 40 million uh, dedicated Power Up Rewards members. To um, you know, if you can figure out a way to re-engage that customer, you can figure out a way to uh, uh, to to just excite, I think that's Ryan Cohen's words were um, in his uh, uh, in his letter to the shareholders. If you can figure out a way to excite these these uh, members, you know there's a lot of uh, you know there's there's a lot of revenue potential there. What would you say to the leadership now of GameStop? What should they do with all of this extra cash? Presumably, they should be very very afraid that it will all go away very quickly and that the stock might drop. Don't don't know that that will happen, but it's a sure possibility. What should they do today and tomorrow? You know, their liquidity position is actually pretty good, so I don't think that they need to necessarily issue stock. Um, and uh, I think that they should just sort of keep doing what they're as, as distracting as this is. You know, uh, I think they've got a hundred million dollar at the money um, shelf uh, registration done. 
you know, maybe they raise some equity here. I don't know. They don't really need the money. They, they, their liquidity, again, is pretty good. Um, if there is an opportunity, maybe they see an opportunity here uh, to raise some more capital to, to, uh, to finance some of those, uh, th- those growth initiatives that I just described. You know, I, I don't know how capital intensive their, uh, their uh, initiatives might be, but, you know, it might make sense at these levels to do that. And, and frankly, you know, the stock is so elevated. You know, let's say they issued, I'm going to throw this number out there, if they issued half a million shares, yep. okay, and they raised, I don't know where the stock is now, $330, that's $100 million <laughs> of capital. Who can't, you know, 500,000 shares, you know, that's not really, a, yep. not even a, a rounding error. As a former banker, that would be my uh, advice. John Broderick, Portfolio Manager for Permit Capital. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. We want to continue this conversation now with two more people who know a lot about what's going on. We have Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow, on the phone with us. Sarah Ponzak in studio. She's Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. Sarah, let me quickly get to you because give us an update. We've had a clampdown from the brokerages on a lot of these stocks right now. Uh, where do we stand? Right, we have. So from Robinhood, we've heard from another app called Trading212, also Interactive Brokers. So where we stand now is that it seems as though Robinhood has actually actually made it as though no new shares of a couple stocks can can be purchased. So GameStop, AMC, Nokia, over at uh, Interactive Brokers, they made some changes to their margin requirements. Uh, and they also made it so that no new options uh, positions can actually be opened in some of these stocks as well. And that also includes BlackBerry. The likes of Trading212, for example, they seem to be saying that they're no longer taking new users because they're just inundated with volume at the time. And it's just been this back and forth really for the past 24 hours. But yesterday evening, after markets closed after 4 p.m., for a short period of time, we saw uh, Reddit go private. Then we saw shares fall. They came back public. But now this is weighing on the shares, too. Jim, I want to bring you in. Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow. Jim, give us a sense. I mean, what's different about this from my perspective? I've been in this stocks game for 30 years and people always trying to squeeze shorts but what's different this time is social media and how that's leveraging the voices here what are you seeing yeah exactly i I think you know this this has some of the hallmarks of a pump and dump scheme i know you've been talking about that and and that's obviously a concern but it, it sort of meets the emotion of a maga rally right that's what's different this time is the social media is the mechanism by which it's being amplified but it's it's not clear if the greater joy is coming from actually making money or from sticking it to the hedge funds and the Wall Street types. And, and that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, but as I keep saying, Sarah, you know, they're only sticking it to the, the short hedge funds. They're not sticking it to the long hedge funds. If anything, they're helping them out. You would think so. But something that has been interesting lately is that there's an ETF that's GVIP Go, and it actually tracks hedge fund long positions too. And while today it's having a, a bounce back up about 3% or so, so outpacing the market, the S&P, for example, uh, is up a lesser, I'm trying to pull it up right now, 1.5%. Um, but if you look over the past couple of days, there's been talk of some of these hedge funds having to degross. And what that's done is weighed on popular long hedge fund positions as well. Before today, we had seen this GVIP ETF down five straight days. Yesterday was down 4.3%. Meanwhile, your most 
most shorted basket was up 9%. So you see others being pulled into it too. And yes, they might mostly be sticking it to Melvin Capital, uh, to Andrew Left of Citron, for example. But the way they view it, it seems, especially when you look at these message boards and you read the way that they speak, they see it as a, a larger entity. They see it as a larger establishment. And they say that if they can be successful and they can prove that they can move markets and get a group of people together and make a lot of money on, on the behalf of some of them, then, then they're sticking it to the man. So, yeah, it's interesting. And, and Jim, uh, you know, I've seen from some Wall Street strategists, you know, lists of stocks that have a lot of short interest. I mean, is your expectation as you take a look at what's happening on social media, is this something that's a flash in the pan? Or do you think this might be with us for a while, this type of trading? You know, my expectation is it's going to be with us for a while. Again, the emotion is raw, right? I mean, look at where we are politically and what's going on in the world of politics. And I think this is just the financial manifestation of that. So to say, oh, it's just a flash in the pan and it's going to go away, seems maybe not supported by people's emotion. But the other thing I'll add is, you know, we, we typically look at big tech, right? Look at the Facebooks and the Twitters and YouTube owned by Google, et cetera. But look at the names that we're talking about. Those are there. But really, this is Reddit and Discord and the stock trading app, uh, Robinhood. Uh, you know, this is not just a big tech story. There's lots of smaller tech involved as well. And I, I think that the morphing and evolving of this to not just be a big tech story is another piece that we need to follow. Sarah, AMC is down 55% at the moment. Wow. Uh, I'm just curious, is this because of the rules that the brokerage has put in place? And are we going to see a return to some kind of uh, normality? Because Redditors are not happy about this. They're not happy about not being able to take on the free market in all its glory. They're not happy about it at all. And it does seem to be the case. Earlier today, so for example, GameStop is currently down 24%. You mentioned AMC, currently down 55%. They were just halted due to a volatility halt. And they just became unhalted and are moving once again. But yeah, when you looked at the news coming out this morning, the first to really cross the tape was from Robinhood, that customers were saying that they were facing restrictions on buying some of these stocks. And you immediately, I mean, I mean, immediately you looked at GameStop and it turned negative after trading above $500 a share just within a few minutes. So that does seem to be uh, where this is stemming from today. All right, both of you, thank you so much for your insights. We continue to follow this story all day. Obviously, the, uh, the regulators and you know, agencies like the Fed aren't or can't do anything much about this yet, but the brokerages are taking matters into their own hands. We'll see how the likes of the Reddit traders respond to that throughout the day. That is Jim Anderson of Social Flow and, of course, our own Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg. And once again, AMC is down 55%, but don't forget it did have that more than 300% run up the other day so it has plenty of uh, room to spare and in terms of the major indices we're seeing a bounce back today the S&P up one and a half percent but we're going to talk uh, something slightly different now because we want to bring in our next guest who apparently uh, or as, as as far as we know let's put it that way has nothing to do with GameStop <laughs> these days Jim Keen is CEO of Steelcase which is a leading manufacturer of furniture for offices hospitals and classrooms Jim uh, first of all I, I presume I mean are you tempted as a as a civilian <laughs> to join this this uh, this clown car well, I am a, a video gamer. I love playing video yeah. games, but I'm standing on the sidelines for this uh, game stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's 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 uh, it's probably wise. Talk to us about uh, orders. Are people looking for furniture to go back to offices, hospitals, and classrooms at any greater of a rate than they were over the last few months? 
At this point, I'd say it's still pretty um, muted. I mean, people are mostly working from home, as you know, especially large corporations. Certainly healthcare, classrooms, education are doing things uh, as they prepare for what's next. And uh, we're seeing corporate offices beginning to take those actions as well. So while it, it, it hasn't necessarily turned into orders yet, we're seeing a, an increase in activity because with a vaccine coming, there's an end in sight. And what, what we're hearing from our clients, in fact, I, I just had a conversation yesterday with one of our clients, the head of real estate of, you know, major kind of top 50 company, had just got off the phone with his CEO who wanted to know how they were going to come back to the office, how they're changing the office to prepare for what's next. So uh, it's on everyone's mind, and uh, I think it's all coming. So, Jib, I guess we'll all figure out at the same time, uh, you know, how uh, and to what degree people will go back to the office. What do you think employees want and need when they come back to the office? Great question. So we, we spent this last year studying, actually connecting with 32,000 people around the world as they were working from home uh, to learn about their work from home experience and to try to understand what they might expect when they come back to the office. So we, And we learned a ton. I mean, we learned a lot about the work from home experience. Uh, what we learned about their expectations is, uh, first of all, safety. You know, safety is not going to be less of a concern. Vaccines are going to solve a lot of problems, but they're not going to completely eliminate COVID. Safety will still be on the minds of people, particularly as they come back to offices that had over time become you know, really dense, really open. Uh, there's going to be some common sense adjustments, I think, needed to reassure people that when they come back to the office, that they'll be safe and it'll be safe to take off their masks again. Uh, a second thing we heard from everyone is belonging. Uh, it, the, the relationships we all built when we could work face-to-face, we're still leveraging, but but over time, those relationships begin to atrophy, and it doesn't help us with that new employee who joined. It doesn't help us as we change teams or organizations shift. So uh, people want a sense of belonging. They want to be connected with each other, and uh, they're looking forward to coming back to the office for that reason as well. And I think um, thirdly is productivity. We heard this a lot. While in some ways people were able to sustain pretty high levels of productivity at home, and in some cases people felt they were even more productive because they could work in an uninterrupted way for longer periods of time, uh, people also realized they're missing something. They're, They're not learning as much from their colleagues. They're not able to have maybe some of the more informal tacit, tacit learning opportunities that you have when you when you kind of just brush up against people or you get to see how someone handles a situation uh, kind of from the side. So uh, those are some of the things people are looking forward to uh, as they uh, sure. think about coming back to the office. So, Jim, you know, where are you seeing the orders coming in from these days? Is it more hospitals? Is it more headquarters with, you know, desks and lamps and, you know, standing desks and things like that? Or or have you had to pivot your supply chain and your your uh, your work environment differently? Well, I'd say, first of all, it's different by region. So as a global company, um, Asia was the first to see the COVID crisis, but also, Asia was the first to come out of it, and they haven't really seen the second and third waves the way we have in Europe and the U.S. So in Asia, uh, we're seeing business return to more normal levels across across a wide range of companies, and that's a good sign for the rest of our business because uh, you know eventually we hope to be in that same spot. In markets like the U.S., uh, customers like healthcare organizations, education have remained pretty strong throughout. Uh, I'd say where orders have been the weakest, it's among the largest companies who are often uh, in headquarters buildings in the largest cities. 
it, that's where the commutes are the toughest. You have to deal with elevators and things like that. So the very largest customers have cut back the most, and our business has been the strongest among mid-market smaller companies that, that aren't facing a lot of those same challenges. They're more distributed around the country. So, Jim, when, when you talk to uh, senior managers of the, of, the, of the companies that you do business with, what do they ultimately believe will be the kind of the new normal workforce? Will everybody come back? Will everybody come back on a kind of a, a, a split type of schedule? Will, what's, what's the thinking? So the thinking is that most people will work from home a day or two a week if that's what they choose to do. And that the last part of it is really important. It's about choice. Uh, I'd say this is not that different, really, from what progressive companies were doing before all this. But most of our clients who are kind of at the leading edge of, of thinking about how they use the workplace gave people the choice. If you wanted to work from home before a day or two a week, you could do so. And that's that's probably going to just be more common across a broader range of companies. Now, some people are, are saying, well, you know, there, there's a handful of companies that are saying, well, maybe we're going to have everybody work from home or we're going to have nobody work from home. Uh, that idea that, that a company is going to try to control that, I think, is a bad idea, and I don't think it's going to be successful in the long run. So I, I think the biggest change is that employees will have more choice. And the, the other change, I think, is that now that the office will have to compete against working from home, the office will have to step it up. So it's no longer going to be acceptable that when I come into the office, I can't find a place to concentrate or I can't uh, connect to a video call that I have to be on or or all the things that maybe you were able to do at home, depending on how your home situation was. You, you should be able to do that and more when you're in the office. And I think a lot of companies now are, are looking at that and saying, okay, we have, to, we have to make sure our offices are safe, they have to be productive, uh, they have to be inspiring. So this is another, I think, important piece. You know, if you, these days, everyone's thinking about competitive advantage. It wasn't that long ago when the main conversation would be about digital transformation, or we'd be talking about disruptive forces in your industry, thinking about how you can innovate more quickly, and CEOs were recognizing that to have a competitive advantage in those areas you needed to have a culture that supported higher levels of trust, that attracted the right kinds of people to your organization. These are all very subtle, but this is what competitive advantage has come to. I mean, it's, it's very small things that define winners and losers in business these days. If you have everyone working at home, your, your people's homes are no different than your competitors' homes. You've basically given up an accepted parity, and I think a lot of companies are saying, we can't accept that. We have to have a work environment that competes, where we can advance our culture, where we can help people connect to the purpose of our organization, we can inspire people, where our people learn faster than our competitors' people, and that's that's the new aspiration for a, a better a better way of working. Jim, in what are input costs like these days? Uh, highly volatile, right? So, in some for some commodities, we see lower costs, and then for other things in the short run, think like steel and transportation, we've seen higher costs, but it's it's a very unstable situation, you know, steel in particular. So how do you right deal with that? Price. I mean, do you change the pricing that you charge your customers constantly, or do you just eat the, the, the higher prices when they come? It must be so difficult to deal with that. We have long-term contracts with our suppliers, but we also have long-term contracts with our customers. We don't try to change the prices constantly. Uh, we can't. So th there's a certain amount of absorbing the ups and downs, but if you're managing your business properly, you capture the ups and you capture the downs. And so it it, it, it kind of take, it comes out in the wash in the end. 
Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go, Jim. I mean, talk to us about the supply chain. We don't, we haven't talked about that in a while here with some of the uh, issues with China that were, you know, so much in the news pre-COVID. Talk to us about your supply chain and kind of what you're seeing. Our supply chain is distributed around the world, and it's primarily set up to support local customers. So in the Americas, most of our product comes from factories in the Americas. In Asia, to serve Asian customers, it comes from factories in Asia, and the same in EMEA. So we have kind of a regional structure. We do have some components that are made in one region that support the entire world. So they may be made in Asia, and they, they ship to the U.S., and they ship to EMEA. But for the most part, we try to keep our supply chains relatively short and close to the market so we can keep our lead times down. And that helps us during uh, times of disruption. But it doesn't mean we're immune. You know, we're still dealing with you know, making sure that we can get our products onto containers, with it, which are in short supply. And, uh, and so we still face our own set of challenges. Has it been difficult not to be able to travel? You know, it has, of course, because you miss that face-to-face interaction. But like anybody else, we're also using video a lot. So, and, and I would imagine in the future, and we're hearing this from our clients as well, everyone is learning. What are the things that you can do without traveling? And what are the things that you should spend more time doing when you, when you go through the effort of traveling? So, for example, um, in the past, I might travel and dedicate a lot of time to going through business reviews in different regions. Yep. I can do a lot of that over video. But what I can't do is have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with all the people that I meet. Right. You know, and, that, and that's actually the most valuable part of the traveling is the things you learn around the edges of the work yeah. you're doing. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Jim Keen, president and CEO of Steelcase. They are based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the future of the new work environment post-pandemic. Busy night for tech investors last evening. We had a bunch of big tech names report earnings, including Apple and down. We do it with our good friend Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Research at Wedbush Securities and a Penn State alum. All right, Dan, let's start with Apple. Some blowout numbers, over $100 billion in revenue in a quarter, yet the stock's off a couple of percent. I know it's been up about 75% over the trailing 12 months. What did you make of the numbers last night? I mean, I think in all my years covering Apple, this is one to frame for the history books in Cupertino. A $5 billion blowout on iPhones. I think what you saw last night is that the super cycle, there was a lot of hype. But the reality met the hype and actually exceeded it. And I think this is really going to be the path to a $3 trillion mark cap over the next six to nine months for Apple, despite you know a little bit of a knee-jerk negative reaction today. What keeps it going? So, you know, we're in a pandemic. People are on their phones a lot. You could potentially see why Apple might do well in this quarter. But what keeps it going from here on out, at least for the next few quarters, Dan? Sure. A lot of it, and the reason it's a super cycle, is 40% of the install base, 350 million iPhones, have not upgraded in three and a half years. And you are seeing just a massive upgrade opportunity as well as 5G. And that's going to continue to be a catalyst for the coming quarters. We think this will eclipse the record from 2015 for iPhone units, which is 231 million units. We could be looking 240, 250 million units this time. But services, that's the key. Services, we believe that's a big part of the re-rating. Services alone, I believe, is worth 1.2 to $1.3 And that's why this is still a green light to own this name. And I think what we saw last night just puts another feather in the cap for Cook in terms of uh, for investors in the bull case. 
Dan, talk to us about China. There was a you know point, let's call it a year or so ago, when trade tensions were uh, you know really ratcheting up here, and we were concerned about supply chains in China and tariffs. Talk to us about that. What's the company saying on those, those issues this time around? Yeah, when you think about Apple, I mean, Apple's really the pusher child for the U.S.-China cold tech war, and we've seen that overhang over the last year and a half. But yet now China, supply chain issues have really corrected themselves. A ratcheting down of tensions between the U.S. and China bullish for Apple and semis. But the most important thing, too, is demand. About 20% of demand is going to come out of China, and that grew 57% year over year. So it really mm-hmm. just shows a the hearts and lungs of this upgrade cycle is China. And you are seeing massive demand for Apple and for iPhones coming out of China, which is huge. That That's really something, that's a signal that we're going to see over the coming quarters as this plays more and more of a part, not just on iPhones, but services. I think that's a big part of the re-rating that we're seeing. Talk to us about Tesla, because the sixth straight profitable quarter, it really had a, a great quarter, stock down about 3%, but as you say, this could just be, you know, similarly to Apple, a little bit of sell on the news. But what happens going forward with Tesla? Can it keep up the record? I think right now we're in a golden age of EVs. 3% penetration globally, going to 10% next three to four years. GM just talked about going all EV. And when you look at Tesla, in the EV markets, Tesla's world, everyone else is paying rent. Last night's numbers, robust, a little knee-jerk negative reaction, just what we'll call conservative guidance for 2021. But that's what you want to see them do. You don't want to see any of these companies, given this backdrop, to come out and have aggressive guidance. And, and I think when, as we look out, right now the trajectory could be a million-plus units of deliveries by 2022 and a more profitable Tesla. That's why we believe bull case 1250 with our base case 950 as price target. Dan, talk to us about profitability at Tesla on a unit basis. Do they make any money manufacturing cars or is it just the, uh, the, the credits? Yeah, I think that's always been a bit of the misnomer in the bull bear thesis is that a year and a half ago, that could have been the argument. Today, given increased profitability, especially in China, we think the average car sold in China is about 20 to 25% more profitable than the U.S. because of Giga 3 and what they've built in terms of the ecosystem in China. And going forward, I believe they're profitable not just on the actual car. And, of course, tax credits are going to continue to be a tail. And even with Biden administration, I think doubling down on tax credits and restoring them to Tesla. But at the end of the day, the red ink's in the rearview mirror. That's how they got into S&P 500, and that continues to be a focus of investors as we look forward into the next three to four years. Briefly, Dan, we're almost out of time, but could a Reddit brigade do something to any of the stocks that you covered, you imagine? Are you a little bit nervous that something that you know they might train their eyes on one of your uh, coverage stocks? Yeah, and I think when you look at Tesla and some of the fang memes, I mean, they've obviously had a lot of noise. But ultimately, it's a market force that needs to be focused on. It's going to be here to stay in terms of the Reddit, social media, Robinhood. But when you look at these names, fundamentally, I continue to think they continue to go up and to the right. Our view tech stocks are up another 25% over the next year. And what we're seeing with the Reddit rate doesn't make us any more cautious or risk off on our names. I view this as... It's a contained risk situation, especially when we look at names like Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, and others. 
Dan Ives, Wedbush Securities, always amazing to speak with you. Thank you for all of your analysis on Apple and Tesla that reported yesterday, of course. We'll speak to you again soon. And it's interesting, Paul, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez jumping in on the side of the Redditor saying that uh, we must know more <laughs> about Robinhood app's decision. At the same time, of course, uh, employees of GameStop are a little annoyed because they're not benefiting at all from any of this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.